What do you see? Our eyes are used to seeing that which is good for us. Opportunities for our business, for our career, for our enjoyment. But as the author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pain, loneliness, despair? There are many people suffering who do not understand that Christ has taken all of this upon himself. For this reason, we want to challenge you Choose a person you can make a commitment to for a year with the purpose of presenting Christ to them. This can be a friend, your boss, or a neighbor, anyone. Someone you will walk alongside, pray with, and help throughout the year 2020 with the sole objective of modeling the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you see? comes from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and read on the screen behind me. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is, in, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I was reading this text this week, I was thinking about the things that have fundamentally changed me. We've all had fundamental changes in our lives. Some are profound and some are more superficial. One of the things that has fundamentally changed me was the first time I tried boar's head cold cut meat. Do you know what I'm talking about? The first time you try it and it's not living in its own juices and it's not wet, changes. You can't go back. The first time I had good coffee, any good coffee fans in the room? Yeah, you can give a shout. I know we have some Keurig fans in the room, no shade, but I don't like my coffee that's water with a splash of coffee. I just don't like it like that. I like good coffee, the French press in the morning. There are other things that have been fundamental changes in my life, like when I began to watch the greatest TV show of all time, Lost. Any Lost fans in the room? Okay, I guess not. Okay, it's on Netflix, you can watch it, it's amazing, fundamentally changed me, because it was, well, I was in college when we were going through it and watching it, you couldn't DVR, you had to watch it at the time, and I realized TV shows can be like movies that last six seasons. Now, the ending is controversial, but it's a great show, fabulous, need to watch it. And one of the things that I, I believe has fundamentally changed me for the better in some ways is this year, is this pandemic. I hope it's a fundamental change because what I see God doing in me, and maybe you relate, is that he's building up gratitude. I 
realize that I took things for granted, small things even, that are blessings and privileges. Things like going and eating at a restaurant with friends. How great was it when you could go back to a restaurant and eat and take off your mask and spend time with people? I realized how important my close friends are and how I need to spend time with them and have them around me. I realized how, how incredible the family is that God has given me, my kids and my wife, and just spending that time together. I realized how much I took for granted this. I have never in my life not been able to go to church whenever I want, and neither have you. And then when we're stripped of being able to be physically present and to sing together and to hear each other sing, to be around each other as we pray and as we read God's word, as we take communion, to be removed from that, I realize I don't want to take that for granted. Fundamental changes. And one of the things, if you are a believer in Christ, if you believe in Jesus' death and his resurrection, you know that is the greatest fundamental change of your life. There's nothing greater than that. Why? Because it's an eternal change. It is a change that fixes a new destination for you in eternity, and it is a change that evolves every single day. See, in the Christian faith, we call that sanctification, meaning you're becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. Now, there's valleys and there's hills, but God is growing you more like him. You are literally changing every day. Your desires are changing. Your thoughts are changing. Your lifestyle is changing. Everything is changing because of your faith. And when you hear stories like Natalia shared, though your story may be different, there's a familiarity with it. There's a connection to it. Because, you see, we are people that can explain our faith. We are people that have logic behind our faith. But we are also people that have come into relationship with the very God who created us, and it's very difficult to explain that. But when we hear stories of others that have been changed, when we get in small groups, when we worship together, there is a familiarity that connects with the most fundamental change in our life. And it changes not only us, but it changes how we see other people too. And that's what Romans chapter 9 is about. The beginning is Paul is explaining how this fundamental change in his life has changed the way that he views his people, the Israelites. You see, this chapter is about Paul's anguish, his great sorrow. Now, you have to understand a little bit of a background of this letter, the letter of Romans, to know what's taking place here. So the first eight chapters is a theological exposition. It is deep and profound and rich. It is about God's love and God's grace and how we're no longer under the law. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're set free in Christ. How before we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, but now by God's grace we have been reconciled into a relationship with him. And you would expect, as Paul unpacks all of these theological truths that he would now shift in chapter 9 to speak about the implications of who God is. Like, how do you apply that to your life? He's going to do that in this letter, but not till chapter 12. So chapter 9 through 11 is literally a bridge in the letter where he begins to drill down on the anguish that he feels and the great sorrow he feels for his people, the Israelite people. Now, Paul is a Jew. So he, these are literally his people. He's an Israelite. However, things have fundamentally changed in his life. So Paul was a Pharisee, meaning he was a well-studied, 
devout faith leader in the Jewish community. He was dedicated to Judaism. He was so fervent and he was so passionate that when the church began to expand, when Christians began to claim that Jesus rose from the dead and started to share that good news, he saw that as such a threat that he dedicated his life to imprisoning and killing Christians. He was there when the first Christian was martyred, holding the coats of the very men that picked up stones to stone Stephen. And on his way to Damascus to round up some Christians and imprison them, he says that he had this profound spiritual awakening where he met the risen Christ. And it changed his life forever. Literally left him blind for three days. He was on his way to round up and imprison and kill Christians. And on that road, three days later, after he regained sight, he was literally directed in the opposite direction to begin to plant churches. He went from a Christian persecutor to a Christian pastor. He went from a religious fundamentalist to a grace-filled follower of Christ. He, was, he went from looking to destroy the church of Christ to build the church of Christ. Profound change, fundamental change in his life. And he was a man who was actually called not to Jewish people, but to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. You see, Paul was a very interesting man. He was raised in a city called Tarsus, and he was raised around Greco-Roman non-Jewish people. And so he understood this culture. He spoke Greek. And so God called him to non-Jewish people. And that's why he traveled all around the Roman Empire sharing the gospel of Jesus and planting churches. That's why he writes the letter Romans. But you see, though Paul was called to the, Jewish, to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and his life was fundamentally changed, he was no longer spinning every day around those Pharisees, those other Jewish leaders who wanted to destroy the church, he never disconnected himself from them. He never disconnected his heart and his affections from the people that he used to walk with, from the people who believe like he used to. From the people who live like he used to live before he encountered Jesus. And that is a challenge for us. Paul's example. Paul's example is a challenge to us because when you have come to encounter Christ, when you've come to receive the grace of God, the question that is posed is have you disconnected from the people that were walking with you, that believed like you used to, that lived like you used to. Because when you come to faith, you have a new heart. You're changed profoundly. You have new desires, and everything is new. It's so exciting. You begin to get connected to a church and a new group of people. But there's a tendency sometimes to disconnect from the people that you used to walk with for these new people people in the church, Christians who just, who think exactly like you and believe like you and live like you. We have a new heart through faith, but we still have old beats, old patterns, and old people that we are called to remain connected to. You see, the Christian faith is a faith where we do not remove people from our life, where we do not cancel people from our life, where we do not cut people off and form insulated bubbles with people that just think like us and believe like us and act like us. Now, there are times where we need to remove someone from our life because it is wisdom, because there's harm and 
it's wise and with discernment to remove someone. But in fact, Scripture says that the time to remove someone from a Christian community is when a Christian is not acting in accord with their faith and is causing harm to the community, then they can be removed. But sometimes there's a tendency in the church and with Christians to say, it's much easier for me just to sever those previous relationships because there could be some mockery, there could be some confusion, they could kind of push and pull at me, maybe poke fun at me. It's a lot easier just to sever those relationships and step into these new relationships where it's comfortable and everyone thinks the same and we're all on the same track. But we're not called to what's easy. You see, that would have been easy for Paul too, to say, hey, listen, I'm saved by grace, I believe in Jesus, I'm called to these non-Gentile people who I understand, that's great. I don't want anything to do with Pharisees or Israelites because I know the hatred they harbor. I know the delusion they're under. I know that religious fundamentalism that is oppressing them, and I don't want to be around it. In fact, they want to kill me, so I want nothing to do with them, but he never disconnected from them. Never disconnected from them. In verse 2, he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his brothers and sisters, the kinsmen, according to his flesh. You see, we are called, church, to be a bridge, to be a bridge to people. In particular, the title of the sermon is to be a bridge to the lost. Now, that's like a very generic term, to the lost, that we understand that on a level because all of us here were lost at one time. We believed other things, we were going a different path, and God used a person in our life or an experience or a church service or something to awaken us to the reality of who Christ is and provide that fundamental change. But we were all lost, so we understand that. But sometimes when you hear, we're called to be a bridge to the lost, you're like, amen. No idea what that means. You see, what does it mean to be a bridge to the lost? You have to be a bridge to a destination that you know. You can't be a bridge, like, I'm being a bridge, but I don't know to who. I'm just kind of waiting to see how that works out. No, we're a bridge to people we know, and so that means, therefore, we're to be connected to people that believe like we used to, that live like we used to, even if it's difficult to those that were lost like we were. We are a bridge to destinations that we know, just like Paul. You see, Paul says in verse 3, I wish that I could, my, if I, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You hear what he says? My heart is in so much anguish. I'm so broken. I'm so hurting over the fact that my people, the Israelites, the Pharisees like me, I'm sure he has friends in mind and family members in mind. I'm so broken over the delusion that they're following, over the hatred that they have for Christ and his church, over the funda religious fundamentalism that has caused them to not be able to think clearly and be under this oppressive rule of law. I'm so broken over that that I am willing to trade my salvation for theirs. I'm willing to be eternally damned if it means that they'll be saved. That is a deep love. That is a deep connection for people who want nothing to do with him, for people who want to kill him, for people 
that he very well understands their mentality. He says, I have such love for them. My heart breaks so deeply for them that I am willing, if it's possible, to be accursed, to be cut off from Christ if it means that they will be saved. You see, he knows them. He knows what they're facing and what they believe. You see, church, we are in a very interesting spiritual climate right now, one that is affecting not just those outside of the church, but is affecting us. And in order for us to be a bridge to the lost, we have to understand the destination and the people that we are caring for and loving and sharing the gospel of Christ with. And it's not hard to understand because we've been affected by this spiritual climate too. Here's the spiritual climate. It goes along with this phrase. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. How many of you have heard this phrase before? I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I know all of you have heard it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you use it, because you don't know what I'm going to say about it. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. See, typically, this is said as like, I I don't subscribe to certain rules. I don't want to be about any oppression, but I'm spiritual. But the problem with this phrase is that it means so many different, depending on who says it, it means a different thing. That's our postmodern world, right? Some person says it, it believes one thing. For somebody else, it means something completely different. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Now, there are a few things that are in common with most people that hold to this phrase, which a vast majority, um, actually a majority of people in American culture would subscribe to this mentality. Now, there are very many different views of God for someone that says this. One view of God would say, I believe God's like a higher power. He's an energy, or she, or it, whatever. God is an energy, and God is in everything. That's a school of thought connected to this phrase. Here's another one. I believe God is the creator who's all-powerful and all-knowing. Very different views of God can still use the same phrase. In fact, 50% of people that use this phrase in a Barna study said that they believe that there's many gods. Polytheism. So you can say this and believe that there's many gods. You can say this and believe that God is energy. Or you can say this and believe that God is a creator who's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. Very different meanings. But there's one key. The key is the ability to define God for yourself. The desire to define God for yourself. Because most people that say this phrase or hold or connect with this phrase, they do not want to feel oppressed by any religion. They say, I'm not religious But everyone that says this phrase that has any kind of active spirituality is very religious. Every single one of us in this room is religious in some level. We just don't want to be labeled religious. There's disciplines in our life, religious patterns and things that we follow. Maybe it's yoga, or maybe it's mindfulness, or maybe it's meditation, or maybe it's prayer and reading scripture. Patterns that you follow in your life to have an active spiritual life, they are religious patterns. Don't label me religious. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I think the most important component connected to this phrase in our spiritual climate is the ability to define authority. It's one thing to be labeled religious and have different views of God, but it's that desire to define what is authoritative in your life. What is good and what is true and what does progress look like? You see, traditional religious people would say that we are to live in submission 
to an external authority that tells us what is true and what is good and what progress and flourishing look like. There is an external authority, there is a higher power that we live in submission to. There, are, there is a text, like the Bible, that we would believe is authoritative and is true and is good. All of it, not some of it. We live in submission and in accord. We look outside of oneself for truth and goodness. But our spiritual climate that we find ourselves in, where I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, says, no, 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 I don't, I don't look out, I look within. I cultivate and nourish my own spirituality. My modern spirituality is about a deep and personal spirituality that I cultivate myself. You see, modern spirituality has exchanged the truths of one book for the ability to cherry pick from many books according to the vibe that you have. It's like, okay, I'll take some of this, I'll take some of that, don't like that, don't want that. It's the ability to be authoritative in your own spirituality and to determine what you want and what you want to apply to kind of craft and create your own religion of sorts that you nourish within yourself. There's a book that came out a little while ago called Strange Rites by Tara Isabella Burton. And she speaks on this spiritual climate that we find ourselves, this wellness culture and this kind of remixed religious spiritual climate. And she, she says this. You go to the next slide, Brandon. She says, we are born good, but we are tricked by big pharma, by processed food, by civilization itself into living something that falls short of our best life. Our sins, if they exist at all, lie in insufficient self-attention or self-care, false modesty, undeserved humilities, refusing to shine bright. We have not merely the inalienable right, but the moral responsibility to take care of ourselves first before directing any attention to others. We have to listen to ourselves, to behave authentically, in tune with what our intuition dictates. Do you pick up on what's being said? Here's modern spirituality. You need to care about yourself first before you care about anybody else. You need to be concerned about your own intuition. You need to fine-tune yourself and nourish yourself if you want to live free, if you want to find happiness, if you want to have success or significance, or you want to have some type of deep spirituality. You've got to fine-tune yourself. Look within to this deeply private and personal religion. And I think that this has affected people inside and outside the church more now than ever because we have been forced to insulate and to protect ourselves. We have been removed from traditional religious things like going to church weekly or small group, and many of us are out of accord with reading scripture and praying. We've kind of been thrown all over the place, and now we're trying to build back our lives because of this pandemic, and we're picking and choosing different things that we want to apply to nourish ourselves spiritually. And everything in our world is pushing this idea that you need to fine-tune your own spirituality, that you are your own authority, and that you need to determine what is good and true for you and operate within that. See, the big thing that we see all across American culture is fan culture. Who are you a fan of? 
I remember when Harry Potter came out. Who are you a fan of? Gryffindor or Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw or Slytherin? I mean, people are taking tests online to see which one they are so then they can debate with their friend which one's better. I mean, is anyone Hufflepuff? Let's be honest. You know? And then there's a show out there that I know a lot of you like, can't for the life of me understand how it is so popular. It's The Bachelor and Bachelorette. I mean, the fandom here, it's like, we're in, people are invested in the love lives of people you're never going to meet, but are they going to get the rose? And if they don't get the rose, you're like so sad about it. Like, I'm such a fan. <laughs> and then there's, a, there's a, a big debate always raging, who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron, who you're a fan of. The answer is Michael Jordan. That's the answer. That's the answer. And then right now, what do we see? Who are you a fan of? Biden? Trump or neither. You see, we live in a world. We live in a world that is seeking to take advantage of the spiritual climate that we find ourselves, where you define what is authoritative, you define what is good, you define what is true, you define what progress looks like, you nourish yourself, you insulate yourself, you surround yourself with people that think like you and believe like you and live like you. And anyone else that doesn't think and operate within the system that you've defined for yourself, you keep away, you cut off, you cancel. You see, what is taking place right now is you have all of these different things in our world that are authoritative and have influence, and they're looking to capture your attention. They're looking to create stories that you identify with. And so we actually believe now that stories are, are supposed to be made in our image, we're looking for stories to be made in our image that capture our attention, that fit with what we have defined as true and good for ourselves, and then we become a fan of them. This is what political candidates are doing. This is what organizations are doing. This is what spiritual movements are doing. This is what Silicon Valley companies are doing. They're seeking to capture your attention and to say, this system is the system. This system is what is true and what is good and what progress looks like and you need to surrender to it and you need to follow it and you need to become a fan of it and anyone that disagrees with you, disconnect from them. It's where we find ourselves. You see, there are systems and there are things in this world that have truth and goodness attached to them. But what is dangerous is when these small systems become the system by which we operate. When they become a system that leads us as people of faith to disconnect from other people that believe in different systems. We're not called to be those types of people. I mean, the, the system that the Apostle Paul is following and the system that the Israelites are following are two very different systems. Two very different definitions of what is true and what is good and what progress looks like. You could not be more opposite, and yet the Apostle Paul's heart breaks for them. So much so that he's willing to be eternally damned for them. If it means that they would receive the grace of God. You see, we operate under a system that defines what is true and good for us. It is a system that is not made in our image, but is made in the image of our Savior. It is a system where we don't have to search what is authoritative and what is true and what is good. We've been given that. It's right here. What is true and what is good and what progress looks like. 
We've been given God's word to us that we are, in fact, to live in submission to. We do, as people, look outside of ourselves for truth and wisdom and guidance. We don't nourish it within ourselves. We allow the truth of God's word to actually nourish us. That is the system that we are to operate under. The system of God's word. This is our truth. This is what is good. As Jesus said, this is the way, the truth, and the life surrendering to him. Looking to him as authoritative in our life. You see, Jesus, when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, he gives two. You've heard this before. Maybe he said, they said, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he says, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, sometimes we think that the reason that Jesus says that is because he wants people to know, number one is love God, but don't forget, you're supposed to love your neighbor too. As if it's like a linear trajectory. You love God, and then you love your neighbor, but it's not linear, it's cyclical. See, the system that we operate under is one where we do not disconnect from people who think differently and believe differently and live differently, even if we have a hard time with the system that they operate under, we're to be a bridge to them. Because we operate under a system that says we're to love God with everything we have, with our heart and with our mind and with our soul, with all the strength that we can muster. And as we love God, what does it do? It leads us to love our neighbor. And as we begin to actually love our neighbor, that leads us to more profoundly love God, which then leads us to more profoundly love our neighbor. That is the fundamental change that should be happening in the life of every Christian, that you are growing each and every year, seeing that you are loving God more and loving your neighbor more. More and more and more until the day you die. That's the system that we operate under. That is what our faith calls us to. That is the story that is written for us, that our Savior was a bridge to us. We were left out to dry, and Christ came and he died for us. He took our sin and our guilt and our shame, and he paid for it. He said that you have now full access to the Father by the grace that is given to you through faith in my death and my resurrection. And so we surrender to Christ. We love Christ. We are spiritually religious people. That's who we are. We have an external authority that we surrender to, and that nourishes us spiritually. We have a deep connection with our Father who calls us to love Him and then to love our neighbor and then to love Him and to love our neighbor. You see, the Apostle Paul, as he considers his anguish and his sorrow for the Israelites who operate under a very destructive system, but he's still connected to them. He says, why my heart breaks so much in verse 4 and 5 is because there are all these promises for them. There are all these promises for them that they are forsaking. I want them to see what God has for them. You see, there are promises for you and for your neighbor too. Promises that God has given to you and to your neighbor as well. I want to read a couple of them to you. Promises like this, John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, the right to become children of God through faith. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We heard a story of that with Natalia as Jesus knocked on the door of her heart. 
fundamentally changed her. It's true of you too, if you believe in faith in Christ. A promise to you. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, these promises, church, are for you, and they are for your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Who are the people that you are not to be disconnected from, that you should actually be connected to, that you're called to be a bridge to? Paul said, I'm willing to be accursed and eternally damned if my neighbor comes to faith in Christ. Will you have a conversation with them? Paul said that I'm willing to be eternally damned for the Israelites. Will you walk with your friends through their doubts? Will you invite them? Will you be willing to endure those side eyes and that confusion at the way that you live and what you believe? Who's your neighbor that you're called to be a bridge to? You see, that is our calling. That is the system that we operate under. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Please do not leave tonight thinking this. Thinking, I'm going to go out of here, and in my own strength, I'm going to be a bridge to my neighbor and to my friends and my coworkers and my family members that I've maybe isolated myself from and I've cut off and I've disconnected from. I'm going to, in my own strength, go do that. Please don't do that. That's not our system. Our system is to walk out of here and say, God, I want to love you more. You have given me promises that I don't deserve. You have made me a child of yours through faith. You have come to save me. You have fundamentally changed me. You knocked on the door of my heart. And Christ, you have come in to dine with me. There is an intimacy. There is a spiritual deepness that is so profound. I want to lean into that this week, God, and I want to see you use that to grow in me a desire to love my neighbor, to bring to mind those people I'm called to be a bridge to. That's how we're to operate, church. I pray that we would. We would live that way in a world that really needs it in a time that really needs us to live authentically. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're grateful for your sacrifice. Thank you, God, that you love us though we don't deserve it. Thank you for the promises that you've given us, promises that are true even though sometimes we don't operate within them. I pray that this evening we would be reminded of your grace, we would be reminded of your goodness, that we would be reminded that your system of loving you with all that we have and then loving our neighbor is the system. It is in fact what is true and good for us, that you have defined what is authoritative. We don't have to cultivate it ourselves. We don't have to feel anxious Intense when these small systems of the world don't go according to the plan that we had for them because we have your kingdom and your grace and your call in our life. Would you give us people to mind to connect to and be a bridge to? Pray, God, that we would rely on your promises, be willing to share them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.